Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today, before I introduce today's topic, I do want to give a thank you to one of our listeners who just became a patron, Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Of course, if you listen to the show, you well know that people who support this show are what keep it alive. And so if you love this show, please take the time to look at the different donation links in the show notes or just visit thebittersweetlife.net and consider throwing some dollars into the hat to keep this show going. But now to introduce our topic. There was a article that I read today. It's actually an old article. It appeared in the New York Times way back in August of 2010. But I thought it was interesting enough for us to muse about today. And I was just even running the idea by you. And you already mentioned some things I hadn't thought of when I was reading this article. So, And we also know that people love language shows. And this is a language show. This is a very long article. So we will put the entire link to it in the show notes. It's written by a man named Guy Deutscher. So it's a long article. So I'm going to just briefly introduce why he's exploring this. And then there are some parts I actually want you to respond to. So he starts it out by saying that in 1940, a very popular science magazine published a short article that became kind of an intellectual fad for a while. And it was an article that basically proposed that language had a power over our mind meaning that whatever we spoke would restrict our ability to be able to think. And he was kind of proposing this idea of, well, if a language, I'm going to just make up an example. For for example, if a language doesn't have a future tense, or they never in any way speak about the future in words, that in his theory, that would mean that people were limited by the words they knew and wouldn't be thinking about the future. Now, obviously, this gets passed around. People are pretty interested in this concept. And then eventually, after tossing the idea around for a while, people were like, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense. People can think about the future without talking about the future. You know, even if I don't have a word for what's coming up, I realize that there is a tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, so he said... We now know, he says, that, that there are many mistakes in this theory. The most serious one, as he puts it, was to assume that our mother tongue could constrain our minds and prevent us from being able to think certain thoughts. But then they introduced this new concept, which is what I kind of want to talk to you about. He writes, since there's no evidence that any language forbids its speakers to think anything, we must look in an entirely different direction to discover how our mother tongue really does shape our experience of the world. Some 50 years ago, which now would be 62 years ago, Roman Jacobson pointed out a crucial fact about the differences between language in a very pithy maxim. He said, Languages differ essentially in what they must convey, not in what they may convey. Okay. It's a little bit of a mental thing. Languages differ essentially in what they must convey and not in what they may convey. This maxim offers us the key to unlocking the real force of the mother tongue. If different languages influence our minds in different ways, this is not because of what our language allows us to think, but rather because of what it habitually obligates us to think about. So Interesting. That's the introduction. 
I'm not going to read all his article, but I'll give you an example that he gives. He says, for instance, if you're a native English speaker, I can say to you, Tiffany, I spent yesterday evening with my neighbor, and I am not compelled to tell you in that statement whether or not the neighbor was male or female. And if you weren't interested, <laughs> and I'm not sharing, it goes no further than that. What did you do last night? Oh, I hung out with my neighbor. It could have been anything, but it could have been like, yeah, I hung out with my neighbor, you know. Um, <laughs> like, like, for instance, if I was compelled to tell you whether or not that was a male or a female, you would automatically, in your head, if not assume that something's going on, you would at least assume a different interaction. Uh, right, but- right. And this is why we love English so much. Right, right. Because we don't have to tell our business to everybody constantly. Yeah. So like, as he goes on, he said, it's, it's, you have the right to tell if you want to, but you also have the right to take it out and be like, it's none of their business what the neighbor's gender is, you know, who cares? But however, as you well know, in Italian, in Italian, you're speaking a language that compels you to tell me what the sex of your neighbor was. And and so as a result, it is very different. And it also controls what you're conveying and what you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Because in Italian, it would be, ieri ho visto il mio vicino or la mia vicina. The male or female aspect of it would be would be quite obvious. And that reminds me that in Italian, I have personally been, felt compelled to lie on occasion. Mm. Um, not to my husband. Um, we have no secrets. <laughs> uh, but um, but to my father-in-law, who I don't, you know, I'll just put, I'll just, I'll just be very honest here. My father-in-law likes to be in people's businesses. Like he loves to know your business. And especially if you're a member of his family, that he really wants to know your business. And (laughs) (laughs) that's just his personality. I try not to, I try not to criticize, but that's just how he is. So he'll sometimes ask me things. First of all, I might not even want to mention at all what my plans are, whatever they may be. But I have male friends. I happen to have male friends who I'm not romantically involved with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's a shocker for some people, but I do. So I might, you know, he, oh, you're going. Sometimes he has to pick me up from the metro. See, this is where you get, I get put in these situations where he, he starts to know my business. Sometimes if, if I take the metro into the city, sometimes he, he will pick me up from the metro because it's too far from my house for me to walk. And, uh, oh, what were you doing in town? Oh, I had lunch with a friend, you know, but, but I, I, I don't maybe want to say I had lunch with a male friend, not because I did anything wrong. I know I didn't do anything mm-hmm. <laughs> untoward, but he might be like, oh, Tiffany has lunch with male friends. That's interesting. And like quite often. That's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, he, he comes from a different generation as well in which, you know, it wasn't quite as common for, you know, married women to have male friends that they just hung out with just on their own. Mm-hmm. So I might just say, si, ho visto una amica or ho pranzado con una amica. And I just lie. It's not that I feel guilty. I just don't want him to know my business. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's been put in that situation. Here's an interesting thing though, Katie, Hmm. in French, in French, not with every word, but with particularly the word friend, ami. Mm -hmm. Okay. The word, the French word for friend is ami, A-M-I, if it's a male or A-M-I-E, if it's a female. When you say my, like my friend, if it's a male object or a male person, it's mon, M-O-N. And if it's feminine or female, it's ma. So you would think it would 
it, if you can't tell by saying it, because you can only see it, the difference, you can see if it's written a me with an E or without an E, but when you say it, a me, a me, it sounds exactly the same. You'd think, well, I can tell by mon would be male, ma would be female. But when the word starts with a vowel, you have to say mon anyway, even if it's feminine. Mm. So when you say mon ami, you literally don't know if it's male or female, unless mm. it were written down. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that that was kind of a fun thing because I remember saying to my French girlfriend, oh, in France, we were having the same conversation. Oh, in French, you have to like spell it out if you're seeing a female friend or a male friend. And she's like, actually, not really. Mm-hmm. Not unless you're actually writing it down. Will they know? So it's a little tricky secret, but it's only that one word. If you're going to say, if you're going to say neighbor, I think it would be like voisine or voisin. So doesn't mm-hmm. it only works with friend. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of nice though. I like that. Now, do you think your father-in-law would be the kind of person that if you were both speaking English and you said, "Oh, I had lunch with a friend," would he ask you more about that friend? So in a way, no, like if you lie and put an A at the end, it shuts the conversation down in a way that it might not in English. I think if you were fluent in in English maybe, but we don't speak English together. I mean, he's he's trying to learn English right now. So actually we, we do say basic conversations in English, but I don't think he would even think of it. I think, like I said, his generation, his culture, it would be such a surprise for a woman to have lunch with a male friend, a married woman that it wouldn't even cross his mind. Hmm. Interesting. So they give another example because they it's not like English. You're never obliged to share information in English. Um, so the, he gives you a reverse uh, example. Okay. She says that English does oblige you to specify certain types of information that can be left to the context in other languages. He writes, if I want to tell you in English about a dinner with my neighbor... I may not have to mention the neighbor's sex, but I do have to tell you something about the timing of the event. I have to decide whether we dined, have been dining, are dining, will be dining, or so on. So I I have to, I dined with a neighbor yesterday, or I, I will be dining with a neighbor tonight, or I have to give you some kind of context. Whereas Chinese, on the other hand, does not oblige its speaker to specify the exact time of the action in this way because the same verb form can be used for past, present, or future actions. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would get confusing if you didn't know, you know, if you're having a conversation and you don't know if something has happened yet. I mean, again, as he as he writes it, again, this does not mean that the Chinese are unable to d- understand a concept of time, but it does mean that they're not obliged to think about timing whenever they are describing an action. Yeah. I mean, of course, because just like us in English, it's not like we're unable to tell our male and female friends apart <laughs> just because, you know, just because the word doesn't just because the word is the same. Yeah, that's why this 1940s fad that started this article makes no sense whatsoever. I do think, though, that although it, it doesn't, it's not as dramatic as what they were first saying in the 40s, it's not like we can't think about things that we don't have words for, but I do think it, it influences the culture, or maybe it's the other way around. The mm-hmm. culture influences the language because I remember watching a video years ago. I I don't know if it was a Ted talk or some kind of video like that. It was all about living in the moment. And they were talking about how in Sicilian dialect, there's no future tense. 
and how people in Sicily really live in the moment. It's not a society, particularly the people who would be speaking dialect. So the less educated and the more working class people still speak the dialect as opposed to, you know, the standard Italian. It's not that they don't know that the future exists. Of course they do. It's just less part of the culture to really plan, to think about tomorrow, to think, oh, what are my actions going to, what are the consequences of this particular action going to be? It's less part of their mental reasoning. Not that they can't mm-hmm. think about it, but that that it's just the culture is very much like that. So I think there there might be a grain of truth to it, but I think it's more of a cultural thing as opposed to like a not being able to mentally reason a concept. Yeah, yeah, it's almost uh, like a cultural decision made long ago. That reminds me of another article that I read recently that was basically about young people today and having lived through COVID and whatnot, a certain sect of young people are rejecting the idea of planning for tomorrow and are saying, well, given what just we just went through, you know, I'm 22 years old. What am I saving for retirement for? I'm going to go travel the world, you know? Um, (laughs) So maybe the culture is shifting. He says, too, that like when we think about how language affects our mind, part of what he says is that, you know, your speech habits and your knowledge of language is cultivated at such an early age that it's just possible that the patterns that are in the language you know create a habit of how your mind thinks. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, as he put it, when your language routinely obliges you to specify certain types of information, it forces you to be attentive to certain details in the world. I thought that was a really interesting concept that uh, if I always need to be able to tell you the gender of either an object or a person, then I might be more attentive to what the object was, for instance, than I might be if I don't need that information. Or if I need it in English, I need to tell you what time of day it happened or when it's going to happen, then I might be more attentive to that idea than I would be if I was speaking something else. But anyway, there's another concept in here that I wanted to touch on before we run out of time, which is um, exactly this concept of gender and languages that specify gender like Italian and languages that don't. He's talked about these various experiments that were trying to get at, like, does an object having a gender affect your mind and how you think about that object? And maybe you'll have some examples. I thought, well, maybe, you know, since you speak both languages, you're on some sort of cusp here. But for instance, he was saying that, like, in German, a bridge is a feminine object. uh, And in Spanish, a bridge is a masculine object. On the other hand, an apple is masculine for Germans, but feminine in Spanish. So anyway, they basically did this experiment where Spanish speakers and German speakers were asked to describe bridges, clocks, and violins. And they just (laughs) described them to have more manly properties. Like they described them as having strength, for instance. Whereas Spanish. Yeah, the Spanish. Whereas Germans who think of bridges, violins, and clocks as a feminine object tend to think of them more as slender or elegant. Right. As the object. That's so interesting. That's that's a brilliant idea for an experiment. I, w- I would love to read more about that. Yeah, another one you would love this as an experiment. This one I think is even more brilliant than just saying, describe a violin to me. I really love this experiment. They brought in French and Spanish speakers and asked them to um, perform the human voice over a cartoon. But the cartoon was like the French speakers saw a picture of a fork. Uh, You know, (laughs) I don't know. I pictured it in my head as dancing around. But a fork, and because fork is a um, feminine word in French, most of them wanted to speak it in a woman's voice. 
oh, hello, you know. <laughs> um, but Spanish speakers, for whom the fork is a masculine word, often gave it a very gravelly male voice when the fork came on the screen. I, I thought that That's was so even funny. a more. <laughs> I thought that it was even more fun as an experiment. Actually, it was making you overdub yeah. cartoons. I wonder how I would do in those situations because for me I think the gender is less ingrained in me Mm -hmm. because I learned it later and I have to stop and think I mean when I'm talking I don't always have to think about it but it's probably the most the most common mistake that I make in Italian is not that I mistake the actual like if I'm going to say like il cuscino for example the pillow il cuscino if I'm saying a very straightforward sentence Dove il mio cuscino? Where's my pillow? I'm going, I'm not going to mistake it. But if I have to use, um, if I have to just like use an adjective after cuscino, even then I might, I'll probably get it right. Il mio cuscino è molto comodo. My pillow is really comfortable. It's, it comes right after. So I'm still thinking in my head is still going on. Okay. Cuscino is masculine. Make sure it's masculine. But if I'm doing a more complex sentence, like Dove il mio cuscino l'ho perso, l'ho perso, I lost it. And that perso has to agree. Like, mm-hmm. and it's a new sentence. I might say l'ho persa. Uh-huh. And to be honest, I'm much more likely to accidentally say it masculine than accidentally say it feminine. And Aurelio is constantly correcting me on this, <laughs> constantly. It's the number one thing that he corrects me on. And the most commonly times that it happened is when that word doesn't even have to be said. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm using a pronoun, but it's standing in for the word. And then I have to have it agree with either a past participle or an adjective. And when that happens, it, it makes me realize that I don't have that object. I don't have the gender of that object so ingrained in me as a native speaker would, because mm-hmm. I forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really have to, I really have to concentrate on it. Yeah, that's interesting. But in a totally different type of question, do you think of a pillow as being a boy? No, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's, it's, I think maybe like, again, if I had learned these as a child, when I was growing up, I might have that feeling, but because I learned it as an adult, they're all, all inanimate objects to me there. I mean, the only thing is like, what we use in English, like ship, you know, like a ship is always a her and a car is usually a her, you know, usually cities. When you talk about a city, you, you call it a her, but that's an English thing, you mm-hmm, know? So mm-hmm. no, I, I really don't, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. And it's very common for me when it's a word that ends with E in English, uh, sorry, in Italian, Italian words that end with E can be masculine or feminine. You have to memorize them. Mm. And I have a lot memorized, there are a lot that I don't have memorized and I have to ask someone or look it up. And, you know, I am constantly getting it wrong. Like mm-hmm. il ponte, ponte ends with E. I happen to know that word is masculine, just like it is in Spanish, but like nave, cause I just said ship. I just started thinking nave, is that feminine or masculine? And I think it's feminine, la nave, but I'm not 100% sure. Like I'd have to think about it. Yes. <laughs> so. and, and ponte meaning bridge, of course. Right. 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 I don't. I know Claudio's there because he just popped into your background. He for a popped second in, there. but he left again. <laughs> do you think he'd allow us just from the doorway to do a little experiment with him? Would he? Would he? Would we? If we asked him to give us the voice of a cartoon fork, what is a fork in Italian? It's forchetta. 
so Very feminine. feminine word. Yeah. So could we yeah. ask him to perform? He's not going to, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. We could maybe get him to do the, like describe this object, but he's not going to sit and do a cartoon voice. No. Can you, <laughs> no. can you step out and we'll just listen to the empty silence for a second and go ask him to perform the voice of a fork for really quick and see what he does and report back what he does. If he goes feminine, he's not, he's, if he does a feminine voice or if he does not. Oh, so I, I'm not going to tape him doing this. You're not going to tape him. Just go out there and say, if you had to give a voice to a cartoon fork, what would it okay. sound like? All right. Let's see. Okay. We'll wait here. Let's see. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. he refused. Even alone, even in the privacy of our bedroom to do a fork voice. However, <laughs> he was very tired tonight. He did say that it's a woman. Uh, yeah, the fork I said, would be a woman. I said, is this fork, is this fork character in this cartoon a woman or a man? And he said, it's a woman with a high voice. Okay. Okay. I like that. <laughs> this is interesting from like, if we want to get really strange with this concept, because, you know, I guess the main question is, do, does our language shape our intellectual thought? One question he asks, asks in this article at some point is, if you think of a bridge as feminine or a bridge as masculine, does that alter how you design the bridge? Which is an interesting <laughs> thought in itself. But I mean, it is. so in English, if I was making a cartoon where there was a fork and a spoon and a knife hanging out on the beach together, I could make those whatever, like the fork could be the masculine you know, the fork could be the dude, the spoon could be the woman, and the knife could be the dog. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but whereas for Claudio, it's definitive. The fork is the is feminine. The fork is yeah is female. And cucchiaio spoon is is male. See, so it'd be reversed. So if, if you watched my cartoon, it would be just crazy yeah, surrealistic. It's funny because to me, if a spoon is more feminine. Yeah, I would like think just so too. As, is, as in the shape of it, and and a fork is more masculine, but in Italian, it's the other way. It's mm -hmm. the other way. I mean, that also brings up a, a, another question I wrote down while you were gone: is since you learned Italian as an adult, and you have to memorize all these genders, is there any words where you really feel strongly that the gender is wrong? Well, seno, <laughs> which is what seno means, like bosom. Mm -hmm. breasts oh. you know <laughs> yeah so why would that be, not be uh, why is that masculine i don't know i feel like that's a word that should be feminine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's the main one <laughs> that's a good one um, <laughs> that's a good one a quote there's another one that feels like it should be feminine which is what and it's masculine heart oh the heart. heart yes interesting and mind i'm not saying that Women are emotional and men are are, are, men are rational. But mente, mind, is feminine. La mente. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think these two work really well. Il sole, the sun, la luna, the moon. Mm. So the sun is masculine and the moon is feminine, which feels right to me. It is interesting, though, that, that it does put a layer of social commentary on, on all these mm -hmm. objects. Yeah, and then you go into German and you've got a third gender. Mm -hmm. There's the neutral gender in German. Like, for example, you've got, let's look at my German is so rusty. You've got die Frau, the woman, feminine. Der Mann, the man, masculine. And then you've got das Kind, the child, 
which is neutral. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about a child in German, you call it it. Mm-hmm. You're technically you refer to a child as an it, which I think is just so harsh. Uh huh. It's interesting. In all of these discussions of gender, people using different pronouns in offices. I don't know if your office in uh, Italy did this, but in uh, one of the offices I work at in Seattle, people will often introduce themselves as, you know, I'm Tiffany Parks, she, her, I came from California, you know, if they're, if they're new to the job, things like that. Is any of that happening in Italy? And what does that do for all the gendering of everything? Yeah, that is... So we are not definitely not as as up on that kind of of stuff as you are in the States. It's I mean, I've never heard it, never heard it in Italy. I know that some people on social media use it, but generally I think they're expats. Like, I don't know that I've ever seen an Italian write their pronouns in Italian mm-hmm. on a social media site of any kind or on a, like an email signature or anything like that. I've just never seen it. It's interesting. I've always found it interesting the fact that in English, they is this pronoun that you use when it's indiscriminate, when it's non-binary or or what have you, or, mm-hmm. or just someone just doesn't want to say, you know, just doesn't doesn't want to uh, make that call. Let's say mm-hmm. um, in Italian, well, in Italian, you've got the word loro, which means they or them. And you can say, but it doesn't change whether it's masculine or feminine. It doesn't change, but the the pronoun does. So you have to say il loro or la loro, depending, meaning like their friends. If they were all female and you were saying like this group of women, their friends, you'd say, okay, now, now I'm like, am I even saying this right? <laughs> la, li, no, their friend. Okay. Like there's a group of women and you want to say their friend. Got it. You would say la loro amica. But even then, I think that that law has to do with the amica, not them. So mm-hmm. I guess in Italian, there's an, there is an example, one of the rare ones, in which the gender you cannot necessarily tell by how you're describing it. But here's another interesting thing. Speaking of pronouns, when you're talking about possessive pronouns, like her dog, his cat, mm-hmm. in English, that pronoun changes depending on the gender of the person who owns the thing, right? Right. His cat, we're talking about John's cat. Her dog, we're talking about Mary's dog. In Italian, you say il suo gatto. The, it's the cat that's masculine. It's not the person. Mm-hmm. It, il suo gatto could mean his cat and it could mean her cat. It could mean either one. And if you wanted to say now I can't think of a, a, a foca. There we go. My favorite animal. La foca. La sua foca means his seal or her seal. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't reflect on the person who owns the object. Yeah. So that's a little difference there that maybe doesn't have anything to do with our conversation, but it is uh, a curiosity nonetheless. But is a cat always, a, always masculine? Is it always a gato? Is there a gata if it's a female cat? There can be a gata. It's yeah. I mean, it would be specific though. It would be if you have a cat that you specific that specifically is is a female cat. Usually, when you're referring to to animals, you you don't change the the sex. Hmm. Um, generally, like the word for female dog, cane is dog, and the word for female dog is kanya. It's kind of a um, a loaded word. 
it's kind of an insult word in the same way that the word for female dog in, in, in English is, is a, is an insult as well, bitch, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not used very common. I don't know about other, other words like that, but, uh, but like foca is feminine. Mm. Seal is feminine. Cat is, is masculine, but obviously there can be male seals clearly. Right. Right. Of course. Otherwise there wouldn't be any seals. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, we should leave it there, but we um, will put a link to this article in the show notes. It does go on. It it, it explores languages that um, use a different sense of direction than than other languages. Like, for instance, if if you're not the center of the universe and you you're not going left, right, or it's behind me or it's in front of me, and instead I'm explaining to you, go west then go north, you know, like uh, if it's all like world directional, they talk about how that can change how you view the world as well. But anyway, the whole point of it is that we don't really know the answer of exactly how language shapes our thinking, but it's safe to assume that it does in some way and that we uh, do not all think the same in part because of the language that we speak. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic that you could probably talk about and think about for an entire, there could be an entire podcast on just this subject. I want to end with this lovely little quote that I read somewhere on social media somewhere, but I remembered it and I really liked it. In Spanish, French, and Italian, decisions are something you take, like a train that leads you somewhere new. In English, you make them like little pieces of your own creation. And in German, you meet them like friends. I wonder if that has any cultural implication because I do feel like in English, it's like, I made this decision. Like I did this, this was me. And, you know, mm-hmm. and in, in Italian, you know, you take a decision. It's almost like, it's definitely feels like more of a, um, an option. You yeah, know, it's like a really, lighter touch. You know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then German, I, I wasn't familiar with the fact that you meet decisions, but I love that. That's much more like there's two different dynamics going on at yeah, the same time. It's got a warmth to it. To meet, mm-hmm. to meet a decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right. Well, we will leave it there. And next week, we will be launching our Rome series. So yes. we will be spending, I counted it out, Tiffany, we will be spending the entire summer or winter, depending on where you are, in Rome. We will be doing episodes from Rome all the way until September. Wow. That's exciting. Be sure to get any Italiophile friends that you have that may not be listening to the show. Give them a call, highlight it, get them to subscribe because it's going to be a really fun, great summer of stuff from Rome. All right. And uh, until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Support the show by wearing a Bittersweet Life t-shirt or socks or even a Bittersweet Life face mask. We have merch, and you might find your new favorite mug by visiting thebittersweetlife.net. Click on support to explore the merch catalog. And have fun!